All right, I want to make sure the children are out the door before I start talking about this. Because every once in a while, whether it's in a grocery store or Walmart or at the mall, you encounter that classic whiny kid. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The little, little boy, little girl, they're maybe in the, in the cart, in the little buggy being pushed along, or they may be walking along beside mom or dad, but they grab something off the shelf. Could be a toy, could be a box of cereal, Pop-Tarts, whatever it is, and the parent who is there, parents typically try to be the responsible ones in the group, the parent says, no, you can't have that. And they begin to take that object and to put it back on the shelf. Now, you've seen this, right? It begins with a whimper. Quickly escalates to crying. And before you know it, that child is screaming their head off. Now, when this happens in public, people start to look. A little pressure on the parents now. What am I going to do? My child is screaming because I won't let them have Cocoa Puffs. They've seen the little bird on TV. They know that they're supposed to go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and they're doing it right here in aisle five. (laughs) They're having an absolute fit. And I've seen it countless times where the mom, where the dad, when confronted with this situation, decides it's not worth it. Go ahead. Keep the Cocoa Puffs. Now, here's what happens. The child wins. But the collateral damage, the unintended consequences are that selfishness, self-centeredness is reinforced in that child. Now, believe me, I understand. I understand the battle between parents and three and four-year-olds. I've been there. I understand the battle. I understand how hard it is when that child is crying, when that child is turning 12 shades of red, begins to scream, and if they're out of the buggy, is laying on the floor, throwing a huge fit, and now you have spectators. And people are wondering. I mean, people are on the side going, bet you five bucks she gives in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I mean, there's more money passing there than with the lottery. I mean, they're, they're just trying to figure out who's going to win this battle. Why does a child do that? One purpose. To get what they want. And they have either learned, they, they've either learned it by experience or they're trying to check it out. They've figured out that if I can throw a big enough fit, then I can get what I want. Now, here's the good news. As we get grow older, most of us grow out of that, at least that outward self-centeredness, that outward display. I mean, wouldn't it be bad? Uh, wouldn't it be bad, wives, if you took your husband to the grocery store? That's just bad enough for some of you already, just the premise. But you took your husband to the grocery store, and he walks down aisle number five, and he grabs this box of Captain Crunch. I mean, the captain looks really happy there. And he grabs that box of Captain Crunch, and you are having to take that box from him and go, no, no, you can't. And he's throwing a fit now. You can't have that. You've got to have the shredded wheat. 
Well, actually, that might be good enough reason to throw a fit right there. I don't know. (laughs) But typically, we do expect that as we grow older, that we also grow up. And that part of growing up is becoming less self-absorbed, less self-centered, less self-focused. But that's not always the case. I'd like us to look at an instance that we find it happened with Jesus and two of his disciples, James and John, and their mama. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. We're going to look at these, these eight verses, or these nine verses, 20 through 28. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to begin reading here in just a moment in verse 20. If you brought your Bible, that's great. If you didn't bring your Bible, it's going to be up here on the screen for you. You can follow along there. But I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. Uh, You may want to underline something, highlight something, write a little note in the margin to remind you of something that's being said here. And so Matthew chapter 20, we're going to begin reading with verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him, that is Jesus, with her sons. All right, mama and boys coming together. She knelt down to ask for him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him. That these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We're able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them over and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we're well aware in our day and time of helicopter parents, right? I don't know. Any of your parents ever show up on campus trying to talk to your professors? Okay, nobody's confessing to that. Okay. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, this, this concept of helicopter parents, and it does. It, it can extend well beyond grade school, well beyond high school, into college and even into jobs. This is the first instance we know, recording in Scripture, of a helicopter parent. James and John's mother. She, she's got her boys. She's like, boys, come on. We're going to go talk to Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing is, James and John were among the first disciples that Jesus called. They also were not only among the 12, of the 12, James, John, and Peter were kind of the three that Jesus had closest to him. So what you need to understand is there's a very good relationship here between Jesus and James and John. But what about his mama? Well, here's what we discover. When James and John began to follow Jesus... They did leave their fishing job, but their families, they didn't sever the connections with their families. In fact, what we discover is that many of the women from Galilee, we're told, actually went to help take care of the needs 
of Jesus. And so his, their mother was among the disciples. The disciples aren't just the 12. The disciples are all those who follow Jesus. And so there were a number of women, including the mother of James and John, who were among Jesus' disciples. And so they were there as, she, they were there as disciples, but they also were taking care of the needs. This is kind of an extended family thing that's going on now. So they're almost like family. They're traveling together. They're looking after their needs. They're eating together. They, they have this relationship uh, with one another. And in fact, it's pretty interesting that at the crucifixion of Jesus, all except John, we know of, all those disciples, well, Ju- Judas, he's another issue, but the other ten don't appear to be around when Jesus is being crucified. But John's not alone. Notice this from Matthew 27. Many women were there watching from a distance. This is at the crucifixion. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them, and meaning not exclusively, this isn't all that was there, but among that group were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Who were Zebedee's sons? James and John. So she is there at the crucifixion. This is how close the connection is. And so this is not just some woman coming out of left field here, springing a question on Jesus. This is someone he's had a relationship with. Now, We're not sure of her name, but I think we can discover it if we look in Mark's gospel. Because Mark's gospel also mentions the women who came to the crucifixion. And this is Mark's list in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph. So we've got connections here with both those. And Salome. It doesn't say that Salome is the mother of Zebedee's sons. Mrs. Zebedee. But if these two are parallel, then this could well be her name. So now we've kind of got her pegged. We, we've got, we think what her name is, Salome. We've got a relationship with Jesus. She's got this connection with Jesus. So she's not just coming in out of the blue. And her two sons are among the closest of Jesus' uh, disciples. So this woman who has this relationship, she comes to Jesus and she asks for a favor. And just like when someone asks us for a favor, what do we want to know? What is it? What is it that you want? And so she has a very, it's a very simple, straightforward request. Without apology, she says, listen, when you come into your kingdom, which by the way, we're expecting to happen here in the next few days, when you ascend to the throne and sit on David's throne and you become the king over Israel, which is exactly what we're expecting to happen, then here's what I would like. I would like my two sons to have one place on your right side and one place on your left side. Now, why was she asking for that? Because those two places were the places of prominence and power in any administration. So if you were sitting on the right or the left side of a king, you would be next in command and second to next in command, you know, third in charge. These are the two places of promise, the right hand being the most, most important, the left hand being the second most important. Okay, these are the places of prominence. Now, why would she want to do that? Because she's mama. And 
there, she, she's thinking, she's been thinking about this. There are three of these guys who are closest to Jesus. I'm expecting Jesus is going into town. Things are going to happen. Roman's going to get kicked out. He's going to send the throne. And I don't want one of my boys left out. Because if there's only two places and three people, somebody doesn't get one. So this is kind of a maneuver to get Peter out of that group of two. It's okay he can be third, but we don't want him to be first or second. So she comes up with this thing. This is what I would like. Now, here's the deal. Jesus then looks at her and says, you you really don't know what you're asking. And she didn't. And neither did James or John, and neither did the rest of the disciples. They didn't know. It didn't matter how many times Jesus said, you know what, let me tell you what kind of king I am. Let me tell you what kind of Messiah I am. I've come to suffer. I'm I'm gonna suffer. As a matter of fact, he told them numerous times, listen, We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to be put on trial. And I'm going to be crucified. And he even told them, you know what? I'm going to rise again. But they're not thinking about that. They're thinking, "Uh, okay, that makes sense. So I'm 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 going to fill the blanks in with what does make sense. And what does make sense is that Jesus is going to be the king and we're going to be his, his, you know, his buddies. We're going to have these places of power, places of prominence, places of position. We're going to be in the group. And Jesus is going to be the king. They were thinking not about an eternal kingdom. They were thinking about a physical kingdom. And so Jesus tries to help them understand it's about suffering when he mentions the cup. That they, can you drink of the cup? Oh yeah, we can drink of that cup. Jesus is talking about a, a cup of suffering. That he's going to have to endure. And he says, okay, honestly, you don't know what you're talking about, but you are going to drink of that cup. You are going to suffer for me. But as far as the places you're talking about, my father already has those designated. You can quit angling for them. (laughs) You can quit discussing them. Dad's got all of this taken care of already. And then he brings them together. He brings them together for this reason. Because the other disciples, evidently uh, Salome and James and John, didn't think, hey, let's pull Jesus way over to the side to talk to him. Because the other disciples heard it, and even though Jesus didn't seem to get mad, they were ticked. They were indignant. They were furious. Now, why were they angry? Because here... You've got these three folks going in and, and, and trying, to, trying to maneuver, trying to, trying to position themselves where they can get these places of prominence. And so they're, and they were upset that, these, that they had the audacity to do that. Oh, why didn't I think of it? There was some selfishness in here. How do I know that? Because if we go to Luke chapter 9, which is something that took place way before that. You don't have to flip back there, but it's in Luke chapter 9, verse 46. You can write this down. Jesus had been talking about the kind of king he was going to be, the kind of king he was going to be, the kind of king he was going to be. So in Luke chapter 9, this is what we read. An argument started among the disciples about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus is trying to say, listen, guys, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'll be crucified. 
but I'm going to rise again on the third day. And what are they thinking? (laughs) Me. I'm thinking about me. What's my position going to be? How can I get to the front of the line? And they were arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. Can you imagine? Think about this. You've got Jesus, God in the flesh, sitting among you, and you're arguing about who's the greatest. How foolish is that? But it just shows you where their minds were, but it also shows you something else. It shows you how ingrained self is in humanity. You know, the expression, we've all heard it. I've got to look out for number one. Got to look out for number one. The only way that's biblical is if number one is Jesus. Otherwise, it's a totally unbiblical statement. The Bible never tells us, hey, you got to look out for number one. And so that's their thinking. They're thinking about a a physical kingdom, a human kingdom, an earthly kingdom, and their place is in it. And they've been arguing about this since long ago. And so what we see happening here in John chapter and Mark Matthew chapter 20 is just an outgrowth of that. Now, finally, somebody's got the courage to come a step up and go, hey, listen, we want these two places. We want to seal this deal right now before we get to Jerusalem. All right. Now, I'm giving you all this background because when Jesus calls his disciples together, I want you to hear what happened because this can help us. Remember, we've been talking about being a, what it means to be a church member. This is going to help us to understand what it means to be a selfless, not a selfish, not a self-centered, but a selfless church member. And so let's go back and take a look at what he said. Jesus called them over and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And the men of high position, who've got got status, they exercise power over them. It must not, not should not, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, and now he's telling us how it ought to be. Whoever wants to be great, and they all did, Whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They wanted greatness, but you know what? So do we. Things haven't changed much. We all want power. We all want position. We all want prestige. It's just part of who we are. And yet Jesus calls us to another way of thinking and another way of acting. He calls us to humble ourselves, to serve others, and to take self off the throne. Humble ourselves, serve others. And to take self off the throne. And he provides the example. And the example is himself. At the end of that, he said, Son of man, here's the reason I came. I did not come to be served. Now listen, I could have come to be served. And in fact, I deserve it. He is, after all, God. If anybody could have said, serve me, and been right about it, it was him. 
He had every right to do that. And yet, Jesus chose a different way. He chose the way of humility. He chose the way of sacrifice. He chose the way of service. He chose the way of selflessness. He gave up his rights and privileges and much of his power to come and be one of us, to live among us, to teach us, to die for us, and to rise for us. He didn't have to. chose to. Back when I was in college, I, uh, and after I'd become a, a follower of Jesus, I was given a position, which is not a bad thing to happen when somebody says, hey, I'm following Jesus, is to give them some responsibility. And so we were with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I was given the role of the large group uh, coordinator. And my job was to kind of uh, recruit people uh, to come in and speak to the large group. But when it filtered down to our small group, and we had small groups in college, When it filtered down to our small group, I was responsible to help get the speakers to come on a weekly basis to talk to our group. And so I remember I called one pastor because we had sat down. We had this great, great uh, plan. Okay, this is what we want to hear during the year. And uh, I called this guy up uh, and I said, I'd like you to come speak to our university group. And I'd like you to speak on this topic. And the topic was, why did Jesus have to die? And without hesitation, he said, no. I'm a college kid. I'm thinking, what did I do? What do I say now? He goes, I I will not come to speak on why Jesus had to die. But I will come to speak on why Jesus chose to die. Huge difference. He chose to die. He humbled himself. He became a servant. Even to the point of death on a cross. And he is our example of what it means to be selfless. Paul echoes this in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he'd come as a man in external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I have no model sermon for you this morning. I do not have three points in a poem. But what I do have for you is the example of Jesus and the call of Jesus to follow in his footsteps. The call to humble yourselves, to to lower yourself. That's exactly what Jesus did. We don't like that idea. Oh, I lower myself. No. Just exactly what Jesus did. He he emptied himself to become one of us. We have a hard time emptying ourselves because, quite frankly, we're too full of ourselves. It is a call to serve. And listen, the thing about serving is it's not easy. If it were easy, everybody would do it. 
And it blesses my heart every time I walk through the child, children's area and I see adults who are serving by taking care of children. Or when I see the adults who are in here who volunteer with Powerhouse, who get up and go out with them to serve those children. Or I walk in and I see all these tables set up with, with leaders who are saying, hey, listen, I'm here to lead by serving. Or to simply see what I see very often is adults who see somebody else's kid dropping, you know, wheat checks or something on the carpet and who bend over and pick them up. Serving doesn't have to be massive. Serving like everything else we do for Christ begins here. If we have the heart of a servant, we'll serve. But the Bible tells us the heart is wicked above all things, full of evil. The only way we can have the heart of a servant is for God to do something to our hearts, to give us a new heart, a heart that's willing to serve, a heart that's willing to humble itself a heart that's willing to slip off the throne and let Jesus take his rightful place as Lord and King. Paul instructs the church in Philippi, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Nothing. In other words, don't be like you saw those disciples being, okay? Don't do that. Don't jockey for position. Don't angle for power do nothing absolutely nothing out of rivalry or conceit but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves everyone should look out not only for his own interest you're already doing that he's saying but also for the interest of others so what if what if our shared mission was greater than our personal preferences what if the lives of our fellow church members our brothers and sisters here were as dear to us as our own lives what if we quit trying to shove jesus off the throne and allowed him to be lord for real of our lives of our homes And of our church. And what if we desired to have this attitude of Christ that Paul talked about? What if we desired to have this attitude of Christ as much as last week you desired to have that winning lottery ticket? Instead of imagining... Why don't we make it happen? Why don't we do something about it? Where does it begin? For some of us, it begins by giving our lives to Christ to begin with. We need a new heart. We need a new start. We need a new beginning. And the good news is that God's word teaches us that if we're willing to humble ourselves and confess our sins, that God, he's faithful. And he's, he's just, and he will forgive us of our sins, and he will purify us. Listen to that. Purify us, cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. If you need Jesus this morning, this is your day, this is your time, and this is the place. For some of you, you already have that. You've already made that decision. But for whatever reason, you kind of, I've watched a, I watched a video yesterday. Somebody had posted these uh, uh, treadmill fails. You know what a treadmill is? And you know what failure is. Well, you can imagine what happens with a treadmill fail. Okay, people just scooting off the end of it, you know, hopping on and they're going into a wall. Uh, and that's the reason why you don't put your treadmill right up against the wall because one of them just kind of turned like a rotisserie chicken. I mean, it was really bad. But for some of you, that kind of is your spiritual life in the picture of your spiritual life. You, you've had a treadmill fail. I mean, you were going along for a while, but all of a sudden the wheels came off and man, you were slamming into a little wall spiritually. And you recognize today, you know what? I started well, but man, I really, I've really, I, I pushed Jesus off the throne a long time ago. And I've had myself squarely seated as Lord of my life for too long. And today you need to recommit. You need to totally commit. And you need to say, I need a new beginning. I need a new start today. Some of you may need some people to help you. With your spiritual life, you need a place, a people to connect to. A place to belong. And the Lord may be calling you to make that grace fellowship. And if he is... We'd love to have you come and be part of us. There's a saying that I have written down among those that I have to remind myself of, and that is this. Nothing changes if nothing changes. So what will change for you this morning? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word. And we recognize in Salome and in James and John and in the other disciples, we recognize something that is all too familiar to us. We want power. We want position. We want prestige. We want people to think highly of us. And so we elevate ourselves, God. But Lord, today we've heard your call not to exalt ourselves, but to humble ourselves and to trust you then to exalt us. We've seen the footsteps of Jesus walk the path of humility and servanthood and selflessness. And Lord, we want to walk where Jesus walks. And so Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with decisions this morning. That your Holy Spirit would give them no peace until they are at peace with you. Draw those who need Jesus to Jesus. Draw those who need a new start, repentance. Draw them to Jesus. Draw those who need a church home to the body of Christ here. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.